Well, um, happy Mother's Day again. Uh, days like today are really interesting. When you commit, like our church commits to um, trusting in the authority of God's word as your anchor, and you commit to taking one book of the Bible and taking it and chopping it up sort of section by section so that we can understand what it says to the people back then as well as what it means to us today. And you start four months ago and you hit chapter 3, verse 1 of a book today on Mother's Day. And it talks to wives in a semi-controversial way. You can be tempted to skip it like I was. Fortunately, I wasn't tempted too long. And today we're going to be talking about what it means to be a godly wife. Every gentleman in the room, don't exhale too quickly. Because you're not off the hook today. This uh, coming weeks, as we approach chapter 3 in First Peter, we're going to be looking at foundations for marriage, foundations for what God has designed for us and how we are to live. And so, guys, what I wanted to say out from the get-go, God's word is very clear, and we'll get there in a little bit. Actually, I've called in the big guns. Steve himself is going to be here live, not like the video screen live, but like in person. You could punch him if you wanted to, but don't. I don't know why. That's just like my go-to, like a physical thing is like the punch. So uh, he's going to be here to talk to you, okay? And today, on Mother's Day, we have godly uh, wives. What does a godly wife look like? So open up in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Open up your app, whatever you've got, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And um, I want to pray for us as we get going. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we pause in the midst of our worship of you and our adoration of what you've done, we come now confessing that there's a lot of confusion around this topic. There's a lot of uh, differences of opinion, a lot of differences in the way that we perceive this. And yet, God, we want to be in all things submitted to your way. And so, God, I ask that you give me an incredible amount of grace and um, articulation as I speak your words today. And God, give us hearts that are open to hear what you would have to say for us. May I not be uh, speaking my thoughts, but your thoughts, oh God. And God, as we celebrate our moms today, may we do so in a way that honors you. All this we ask in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but has public opinion about what makes a successful or a desirable wife ever been more fractured and more confusing? Like, everywhere we look, there's someone throwing out an opinion, whether it's Oprah or some Hollywood star or some small group leader in the church, just kind of throwing in their opinion about what a wife is supposed to look like. We are all over the map on this in our society. And if I could tap into our collective societal subconscious, if I could, like, just kind of like the matrix, like, get into all of our minds and then paint a picture of what we collectively deem is a successful or desirable wife. It may look something like this. And after I'm done, tell me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> She's always happy. 
always has a smile on her face. She's positive. Her jokes are hilarious. Her attitude's always spiritual. She's her own entrepreneur. She's a full-time employee, and she's a stay-at-home mom. She's trendy, keeps tons of cute boards on Pinterest, sells homemade goods on Etsy, keeps her own blog. At 5 a.m., she does yoga. At 6 a.m., she does CrossFit. She's always going somewhere. She has perfectly normal but funny kids, has a high relational capacity. She gave birth after daintily sneezing. She's always mistaken for a Hollywood actress. She has got, she's got decorating skills like JoJo Games or Martha Stewart, and she can cook like Julia Childs. That's only half of it. She's never served leftovers. She's never overspent the budget. She knows to change the oil in the car at 3,000 miles, and she does so before her husband, husband ever has to think about it. Older women never advise her on being a wife because she obviously has it all together. In fact, secretly they approach her when no one is looking because they want advice from her, even though she's much younger than they are. Uh, Her kids' teachers love her because she's never missed a permission slip. Her husband showers her with gifts, with letters, with flowers, and a cleaning service. But she never has to use it because her house is always clean. And all the while, the impression we get from this woman is that all of this just happens without even trying. Sound about right? This is the American dream mom. This is the American fantasy wife. And maybe the, before I get into this whole, what does God's word say about this, but maybe the biggest thing that we can do for our moms today is just to give them freedom from this ridiculous list of standards. Amen? Yeah. Woo! I just think the guys would be a little stronger on that one, but all right. We, some poor guy out there is like, that's my wife. It's grace. There's grace. We love you. Peter today is going to help us in this text uh, understand and acknowledge that there are severe societal pressures when it comes to being a wife. There are severe forces in the world that happen as, as a result of our culture that change the way we look and change our expectations and change the way women want to act and want to accomplish things. That Peter is going to say, well, let me just give you a couple basics. Because in life, Sometimes when life gets so complex, you need to just take a pause, take a breather, and go back to the basics, to go back to the foundation. When the game is getting out of hand and you feel like you're in a rut, how do you know that what you're doing is helping you win? How do you know where you stand on God's scoreboard? I want to call this message, The Winning Wife. Today we have before us The Winning Wife. Wife and husbands, this is just a free Mother's Day opportunity for you. You can just look at your wife right now and say, You're my winning wife. You could just go ahead. I'd be okay with you. When the game gets complicated, good athletes go back to the basics. When you get basics right, you get everything else right. Uh, to change the metaphor a little bit, when you have a good foundation to the house, the walls stay standing. And in our church, we want the walls to stay standing in the marriages that exist in here for a very, 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 very long time to the glory of God. And so we want to go back to what are the foundations of marriage. Before I get started with what Peter says about the wives, I just want to preface this by 
getting the attention of the men. Men, look at me. Your job is to make this easy for your wife. Whatever I'm about to say, whatever God's word has for us, we're going to learn in a couple of weeks that your role is to be a servant leader. And so that means that whatever comes next is that your role is to make this easy upon your wife. Amen? Amen. Let's dig into 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Is it hot in here or is it just you? <laughs> it's just you, okay. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, before we jump into this and make a mess out of what the text doesn't say, I want to give a little bit of a background as to why Peter is even writing this in the first place. You see, back in the Roman Empire, women were treated as second class citizens. We're so thankful for the women's suffrage movement that existed in this country over uh, the past many decades and for the equality that has existed. And we know we have much to go and much farther to go. And yet in Rome in these days, there were no such attempts on behalf of women to improve their societal status. In the legal world, they weren't allowed to stand before a judge and give a witness or give a defense which means if you killed someone in front of a woman and they were the only person, that you'd probably get away with it. They'd rather let that person go than listen to the testimony of a woman. In the religious world, it was commonly known that the husband was going to be the sole decision maker and where that family worshipped and what gods that family worshipped. It was Plutarch. I don't know if you're down on your ancient Roman history and your old civil leaders, but Plutarch... Uh, wrote and distributed pamphlets that said, the home in Rome must be governed by the man and it is his unique ability and obligation to determine what God their family should worship. This is the society that Peter is talking to. And then in the midst of the society comes a man by the name of Jesus. And Jesus, his whole entire ministry bursts on the scene and he starts valuing women and, and spending time with women. And he's not afraid to be seen with women. And he invites women to be his disciples. And he engages with women. And he attends their homes. And he gives them status and a voice. And he lets them follow him. Jesus dies on the cross. And he is buried in the grave. And the first people to visit Jesus are women. And God knew that he was going to raise Jesus from the dead. And he gave women the unique privilege of being the first witnesses to an empty tomb and a re resurrected savior. They were the first people in the whole entire world to give testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive. How amazing is that? That while Rome wouldn't let them speak in their courts, Jesus was on the other hand saying, come, I want you to be the ones that herald the good news that I'm alive. Jesus comes and totally upsets the apple cart. And everything has changed now that Jesus is here. He's elevated the status of woman. He's elevated the status of those who are oppressed, of the slaves, of those who have been disenfranchised by society. And Paul summarized the effect that this new reign of the resurrected Jesus had on the world in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, saying, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For we are all one. In Christ Jesus. See, Paul recognizes the spiritual 
a quality found in those who believe in Jesus as their Savior. That now status is not determined by man, but by God. And all who believe in God, all who believe in Christ are co-heirs. We're going to see that next week. Co-heirs with Christ. And so if you could imagine yourself as a woman back in this day, your whole entire life you've had no voice. Your whole entire life you have not been able to legally represent yourself. You've always been at the whim and the will of your husband. And Jesus comes and changes everything. And your newfound freedom gives you a whole new world. You may experience some conflict in the midst of your freedom. You may not know how to deal with every single situation that comes your way. And it's still like this today with us. When we come to Christ, we're confronted with new realities and new challenges that we'd never thought of before. What you used to see as fun, you now see as sin. And you're like, what do I do with this? That's the life of a Christian. But the life of this woman was I used to have to publicly go to worship with my husband, but he still follows the Roman temple gods. And I follow Jesus. This is the dilemma. What's a girl to do, right? That's, that's the chick, chick foot way of saying it. If her husband still follows the pagan gods, and she has heard the testimony that Jesus is Lord, heard the story of his unbelievable love, heard the fact that he has been seen by many people to be alive, though they saw him dead, and she knows she must worship Jesus, and she's come to faith in Jesus, but he hasn't. What does she do? And this is the situation that Peter is directly speaking into. The wives would hear the message of Jesus and begin uh, to question, do I have to go with my husband? I think it would dishonor God. Actually, I wonder what God says. Do I even have to be married to him at all? See the problem? Women by scores, were coming into the kingdom of God and having this new authority, and yet society was pressuring them. You have to go to the temple. You have to go with your husband. You have to be submitted to him. And so, don't think that on this Mother's Day, as we're in this text, that we're using this to oppress and suppress women. Jesus doesn't allow that. Peter is not saying that. And actually, what he is really saying is something much more profound than that. Look again at verse 1. He says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. The first principle, I think, the first basic that we have here that Peter lays out for us is that the winning wife roots her submission in Jesus. She submits because of Christ, not because of her husband. She roots her submission in Jesus. Why don't you just look at the person next to you? Maybe it's your wife. You can say that to your wife. Actually, wives, why don't you say that to your husbands? I want to root my submission in Jesus. Go ahead. Most awkward Mother's Day ever, huh? There's a word in this phrase that I want to draw your attention to. It's not the word be subject. It's not the word submission. It's not even the word own husbands. It's the word likewise. The word likewise. There is an enormous amount of freedom in the word likewise. There's an enormous amount of beauty in likewise. There is gospel in the likewise. Likewise changes everything. 
And it leads us to ask the question, if a wife is supposed to submit to her own, own husband likewise, well, like who? Or like what? What is the likewise? And so let me just draw your attention backwards in your Bibles to chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. I'm just going to read it for you. It's, for the, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was his seat found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When he, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the overseer, or the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter roots what he's calling wives to here in this robust understanding of who Jesus is. Last week we talked all about how Jesus is the template for enduring hardships and unjust suffering. And here Peter applies this same template to the wife. He's going to do the same thing, men, to you later. But to the wife, he says, likewise, like Jesus. And so let's just, for uh, you know, the benefit of all of us here, just remember that if Christ had not submitted himself to the will of the Father, if he had not been obedient to the point of death, that there would be no cross and there would be no forgiveness of sins. The story of the gospel is that of a submissive Savior. A Savior who submits to the Father's plan to reconcile and redeem and renew a runaway planet. I think back to the garden on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he fell on his face and he was so in anguish, thinking over the weight of the world that was about to be put upon him, that he was sweating drops of blood. You've heard this story. And what does Jesus do that night? He falls to his feet and or to his knees and multiple times asks the Father, Father, is there not any other way? Can we not do this a little differently? I don't like what's coming ahead of me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So often I think women are tempted to see the Proverbs 31 woman, as glorious as she is, as the template for marriage. And yet Peter's like, that's great, but why don't you just look at Jesus? Here's Jesus. Likewise, be like Jesus in your marriage. Likewise, who Jesus is and what he has done it paves the way for women to be wives. Likewise, the gospel gives shape to the role of the wife. Just like Jesus, ladies. That's what he's saying. Be he's your means of submission. He's your model for submission. He's the target. He is your win. Jesus is your win. And so what does it do to root submission in the person of Jesus? What does, it do, what does it do to your heart to know that when you submit to your husband, you're doing so for the sake of Jesus and not for your own sake? I think it does a couple things. It clarifies for us what submission is and what it is not. And for the sake of some common understanding, let's look at the, Proverbs, or the, the first Peter 3 wife and see some things that submission does not mean. Men, I hope you hear some of these. The first is this. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Don't amen. 
but it doesn't mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Uh, the wife of 1 Peter 3 believes that Jesus is Lord and the husband doesn't. And because her commitment to God is higher than her commitment to her husband, she can't agree with her unbelieving husband on worship. She can't believe with everything he says. Number two, submission does not, believe, does not mean you never try to change your husband. Don't amen. It doesn't mean you never try to change your husband. There's no stones out there, right? You guys aren't going to try and throw me off the stage for saying this stuff, I hope. The wife in First Peter 3 is absolutely trying to change her husband. She's trying to win him over to the gospel. She's trying to let him see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of who Jesus is. This is the most amazing, miraculous transformation that can ever exist in the heart of a man. Men, we are so self-autonomous, so self-governing, so self uh, so self-aware, so self-able to care for ourselves, so self-sufficient, that for a man to recognize that his heart is deceitfully wicked and that he needs a Savior is a miracle. But it leads to the most ultimate heart transformation that we can observe in life. When a man falls on his face and says, Jesus is my Lord. And this is what this woman is trying to see done. Number three, submission does not mean that a wife gets her spiritual strength from her husband. Submission does not mean that you are dependent upon your husband to grow in your walk with God. The wife of 1 Peter 3 can't get any spiritual help from her husband. He's an unbeliever. And so I would say this to you women uh, and wives. Don't cloak your walk with God under what your husband's walk with God looks like. Don't assume that for you to go to God means you have to go through your husband. But likewise, maybe your husband does not have a walk with Christ that you want to emulate and you wish was stronger. You likewise don't need to assume that your walk with Christ needs to suffer because his is suffering. But instead, you submit in love and let God show himself strong through you. The fourth thing is this, is that submission does not mean acting out of fear. Submission doesn't mean acting out of fear. And I guess it should be said in our society, unfortunately, domestic violence is a real thing. It happens in real homes. It happens in homes of people in our church. Our church does not stand for men who are bullies and cowards. Men, you want to abuse your wife? It won't last. We ask you wives not to lay down on the railroad tracks of your husband's anger. That is not submission. But what this means and what Peter is saying, and he's going to say this a little bit later in uh, verse 6 of 1 Peter 3. It means that you're to do what is right in your marriage, but not to fear the consequences of what your husband's going to do. And finally, submission does not mean that wives have to be silent. America came out of a day and age and this culture was very similar to, to ours, where wives were supposed to be quiet. And yet, it doesn't mean silent. Quiet and submissive is the biblical words, but silence, not one of them. In fact, if we look at Jesus as the template for our submission, we have to realize that in the garden, he was not silent, but he spoke up and he said, Father, can we do this another way? And yet, not my will, but your will be done. There is a submission to the will of the Father. So that's what submission isn't. Are we clear on that? But I wonder what submission is. 
And I think the best way to visualize this is in a way, if you're married, you've all done this. I remember my wedding day, uh, Kristen and I, I remember like it was yesterday. God, it was yesterday. It's like just a couple of years ago, five years. Kristen and I have been married for five years. And uh, we got married on the beach five years and some months ago. And uh, I remember some of the vows that we said. I actually remember them all, but I want this to relate to you too. So I'm not going to use our vows. But maybe when you stood at an altar with your spouse and said vows to each other, you said something like this. Dear, I take you to be my lofty wedded wife, to have and to hold, to share my life with you for richer or poorer, in sickness and in, okay, so you did say these, in good times and in, yeah, till death do us part. Inherent in these vows is submission. In these extremes of life, do you see it? In richer or poorer, sickness and health, there's submission. That both of you are coming together, submitting yourself to whatever the Lord has for you in your future. Inherent in our marriages already is this idea that we are going to give on what God has for us. And so submission looks like acting and trusting in God to provide, God to prove, and God to align us together so that we might live out his life. Submission is that you would be actively in alignment with your husband. Actively pursuing that your hearts would be together. And actively speaking so that he can make good decisions and he can be informed knowing that your best interest is in at heart. That is a life of submission. The winning wife roots her submission, not in her own self, not in her own ability, not in her own dreams, but she said, I laid down my dreams at the altar and I laid down my yes when I said yes to Jesus. And I want to root my life in Christ. That's the first thing. That's the what. But Peter gives us a whole other principle here in verse 2. Peter says the, the answer to the question, why? Why should I submit? Why should I, in marriage, be a submissive wife? I hope you're asking that question right now. Why? Why? Read it with me. Verse Peter, uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And look, so that. Everybody say, so that. That's a statement of reason, of why. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. The winning wife roots her submission in Jesus, but the winning wife also roots her mission in Jesus. There is always a mission in your submission. Did you know that? There's always, always, always a purpose behind what God is asking you to do. There's always a mission in the submission. You just need to say that to each other for a second. There's always a mission in the submission. Go ahead and say that to your neighbor. There's always a mission in your submission. Yeah. Some of you guys have caught on to me. And you just start talking up. There's always submission in the mission. That's fine. That's fine. Peter helps us connect the suffering. Look at this. Peter helps us connect the suffering of Jesus to win the lost back to God. And he connects that suffering to the suffering of a wife whose life and example likewise will bring her husband back to God. There's an opportunity these women have to save their husband's soul by their example. And so what is the mission of the Christian? It's to live like Jesus, so that other people may see Jesus and follow Jesus. What is the mission of the wife? It's to live like Jesus, so that your husband sees Jesus and wants to follow Jesus. While 
the wives in Peter's day lived within a society around them, accusing them of being insubordinate by their support and their submission to their husband. Um, we don't have to worry. Because in today's society, we recognize the equality of women, the goodness of women. And yet in God's plan for marriage, there are roles and responsibilities. And women, you can use your role to leverage the mission of Jesus in your family. This is the same mission that Jesus had to submit, to use his role to submit to the will of God so that people could be saved. I find it intriguing. I'm not a sociologist, but I find it intriguing. The play on words that Peter uses is really appropriate for today's day and age. He says that some men, some husbands may not obey the word, which is the gospel. They may not be obedient to God. And then look what he says. Just look in your Bible, verse 2, or verse 1. That they may be one without a, without a word. They don't believe the word, so win them without words. 20,000. That's the average number of words a woman uses in a day. Men, you want to guess? 7,000 words. Which means, in a typical day at your family, in your marriage, there's a conflict. Your husband gets out everything he thinks about the topic, and you're just getting going. It's like you're just loosening up. Just kind of like flexing a little bit. He's already run the sprint. And you're like, no, 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 no. This is a marathon. Which is really interesting to me because uh, if Peter could possibly rewrite this sentence in today's language, he might say this. He would say, wives, don't nag your unbelieving husbands. Don't preach at them at home. Guys aren't going to listen to your little lecture and boy, can you give a lecture. I think what he's getting at is this, is that when we say we're trusting God, but then we at home fight and we claw and we scrape and we scheme and we yell, we push back to get the desired outcome that we want. Uh, we're not trusting in God, but we're trusting in ourselves. We're trusting and relying on our own resources to get done what we want, but when, whenever, ever in respect and gentleness, we die to the fight, which is the Christian life, dying to our inside fight. We die that fight. We display what we truly are trusting in and what God's will is going to do. And really, ladies, let's just hypothetically, let's just hypothetically, Grace here, hypothetically say that you incessantly push. I'm not saying you do, but just hypothetically. You argue and nag. You ask sweetly, but over and over and over again. That your husband would come with you to church. That he might go to a small group with you or whatever. Eventually, he will go but only to make you stop. Guys, don't say amen. You want your husband to want to know God. You want him to come to Christ willingly, not unwillingly. And listen, we cannot play God for our spouses. We simply live our lives in a way that encourages others to see. Isn't that what Peter says? That they will see, verse 2, their respectful and pure conduct, and it will win them over to God. I heard the story of a friend of mine who's a pastor who was doing some marital counseling. And uh, in this counseling, the wife came up to him and just said, I love God. He doesn't. Fix him. 
And this poor guy, who's just been outed to the pastor, is kind of like, <sighs> hung his head down in shame, just stood there embarrassed, a little exposed. His eyes were to the ground. He had just been outed in the most embarrassing of ways. His wife is so passionate. She was so passionate, but passionate in a very wrong way. And it was totally applied in the wrong direction. So my friend, being a good pastor, he's actually a guy on staff at Bethel. He dug in a little bit. He said, so let me get this straight. He was like this before you married him? That's right. So you knew that. Uh And now you're putting all this pressure on him to love God. And making him feel ashamed because he doesn't love God. And then my friend said this, and I think it's the most brilliant thing, most theologically correct thing. He said, you cannot, by human efforts, can only happen by God's grace. And as he said that, that guy, don't you know, was like, yeah, pastor's on my side. All right, boom, all right. Good job, pastor. I knew I liked you. And for all the husbands in the room who are like, yes, thank you. Please tell her to shut up. Um, let me speak to you for a second. I clue you in on a little secret. Your wife wants you to know and love God. She wants you to know the freedom and the forgiveness of sin that God has given to her through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. She doesn't want you to be kindling the fire of the wrath of God that is being stored up against you for your disbelief. And so maybe instead of being a tough guy, you can appreciate the fact that maybe she imperfectly does this or does this in the wrong way at times. She cares for your eternal soul. Maybe today you can understand for the first time that Jesus has actually died for you and he's died for your wife and he's made the person that you walk to the altar with a totally new creation and she hopes that one day you can be that new creation too. Maybe instead of seeing your wife as the annoying fire detector smoke alarm that's chirping because it needs a battery, maybe instead of seeing her as that, you can see her as the true blessing and gift from God that she actually is. And you'd watch her life, and you'd see that what God has done in her life, that he has changed her. She, he is changing her, and you can be changed by the power of Jesus Christ if you would come to him as well. Women, wives, that mission that you have has to be rooted in Jesus. That is the mission to the submission. And then finally, we close this up here, um, this passage in verse 2. The winning wife roots her submission in Jesus, roots her mission in Jesus, and then finally she roots her motivation in Jesus. She roots her motivation in Jesus. Read with me the last verse. It says, That they may be one without a word to the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. If you live without words, your motivation can't be misconstrued as manipulation. Nobody can say of Jesus, he was manipulating the system when he stood before Pilate and didn't say anything. And that's why they killed him. And then that's why he thinks that he's God. Like, that's foolish to be like, dude, no, he didn't say anything. He was innocently killed. Like, come on. Whenever we don't use words, our actions prove what our heart believes. And everything can be explained by this deep internal conviction that you have in your faith. Um, There's a gem of a truth here in this short clause that our English kind of covers up a little bit. The word that we translate respectful is the word phobos. 
Um, maybe you've heard of the word phobia. You have phobias. In my house, I didn't know we had this phobia in our family, but the past couple of days, we've seen like four snakes in our backyard. What is that phobia? Snakeophobia? Something like that? That's what we got. Uh, they're fears, right? A phobia is a fear. And almost all references to fear in the New Testament find their grounding and fearing ultimately God. But more interesting than that is that whenever Peter uses this word, it speaks to a respect that we are to have to each other because of the respect that we have for God. That we are to live out our lives in a fear of God and our purity of moral conscience. And when our husbands see, when your husbands see your purity of morality and see your fear of God, it will win their hearts to God. The motivation of the winning wife is not to fear her husband, it's to fear the Lord, to show ultimately that he is in first place in your life. And so wives, you are to fear God, not man, and definitely not your man. I'm often see fear work itself out in subtle ways in marriages. Uh, The fear of the husband is worked out in the wife who is always fighting him, always worried that he is going to get the last word and it's going to be abusive. And so she begins to be aggressive and controlling. And she shows that she's not trusting the Lord, but she's fearing what her husband can do to her. And so wives, I would implore to you to not let yourself, if that's what you're prone to, is fighting and being contentious, uh, to don't do that. The Bible actually says in a Proverbs that it's better to live in the corner of the attic than it is to live with a contentious wife. Uh, and so we can help our husbands this way. But the flip side of this fear is not to be overly aggressive, it's to be completely passive. To be a wife who fears her husband because she's afraid of what he's going to do, so I'm not going to do anything. I think this is the bigger cause for concern in our society. How many marriages are racked because wives have not properly feared the Lord and spoken up to their husband when the time was so? And instead, out of some misplaced duty, said, up, oh, I can't say anything. Wives, your motivation is to be like Christ. And sometimes the most godly thing you can do is to not fear your husband but to stand in the confidence of Christ and to bring something to light and to speak the truth in love. The motivation of submitting and loving the husband is not rooted in the husband, it's rooted in Christ. Ephesians 5.21 summarizes this challenge to all of us when it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The winning wife roots her motivation in Jesus. That's the scoreboard. Nothing like the first one that I put out there. To be a woman of submission, to be a wife of mission, to be a wife rooted in the motivation of being like Christ. To have him as your template is such a freeing thing. It frees us from the Facebook expectations. It frees us from our own internal desires to be better than we actually are. It frees us up to say, God, this is who I am. And this is the situation you put me in in life. And I know that the absolute most central thing in my life is knowing that you are my God. That you have saved me. My eternity is secure. And so help me, God. In the midst of this, to live out in a way that my husband would see your glory and see your goodness and be inspired to love you all the more. Godly women have such a huge influence on our lives. They have such a huge influence on the life of their family, on the life of their kids. 
Um, wives and moms are so influential, they could turn the tide of the family towards God. Uh, my own mom is here today, and uh, I don't know if I've ever told the story at this campus. Maybe I have, uh, but I remember when I went off to Moody, my mom um, slipped me a note underneath my pillow. said, Dan, I've been praying for you for over 20 years. I was 18 at the time, and I was like, Mom, that's foolish to pray for somebody who you don't even know. And um, she said, I've been praying for you that you might know God and follow after him, that you might desire to serve him with your life. And um, I had never known that. And so if not for the abstract principles in this book that I hope are clear to you today, to see the power the mom has in the life of a kid, you can just look at this woman here, my own mom. Because her prayers in the past were the pathway of my future. That God had been faithful in the midst of all of this. I can look out here and see even men and women who I know have hit rough patches in your marriage. And I know have hit hard times that you didn't think you'd come out of. Who, men, you walked away from God and your wife was left there standing saying, what now? And yet we see the faithfulness of a godly wife in praying for her husband. That God is faithful to do what he said he would do. And women, I want to implore to you today that your role in the family, your role in the marriage is so crucial, it is so equally important that you might help your family be pushed towards Christ's likeness by your purity and by your reverence of God. Don't underestimate the influence you have here as a wife or you have as a mother. In all that you do, you demonstrate the gospel in your marriage and in your parenting. So be rooted in Christ. And your kids are going to see your example and be one. And yet I know there are women in this room who Mother's Day is a really tough time. Because at home it doesn't seem like anything I'm saying could ever be a reality. You've put an asterisk next to every single one of these principles and you said, yeah, but you don't know my husband. And I want to implore to you the grace and the goodness of Jesus today. That you might look to him as your template. I want to pray for you in a bit that if you are in an abusive situation that you would find strength and solace in those who are around you, but ultimately in the the personal work of Jesus Christ for you. And I want to pray for you wives whose husbands have neglected God and don't care about God. I want you to know this is a community that we care for you. We want you to know that you can come here and find rest. But ultimately, that doesn't matter unless it's for the personal work of Jesus. And I want the grace of Jesus to rest upon you today, even in the midst of the pain, to know that Christ is faithful. God is faithful. God will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Even when the societal scoreboard may tell you that you're losing, we know that through Christ... Wives are victorious. They're winning wives if your submission, your mission, and your motivation in marriage is all grounded in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are tough applications and tough principles and tough truths. But we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't have to wonder in the midst of a confusing society what you say is our roles. God, I I would ask that you're gospel would be specifically and specially applied today to the hearts of those women whose wives do not follow you or whose husbands do not follow you. God, to the wives here who are wrestling every day 
with you, pleading with you to help their husbands see the grace and goodness of who you are. God, might you be winning them to Christ? Might you be giving courage and boldness to be submissive in marriage, to be on the same team as their husband, to be affirmed and active in their alignment so that the way that you designed marriage might be fruitful and prosperous the way that you want it to be and not divisive and broken the way that we've made it. God, we are so grateful that on a Mother's Day we can see that you are the true source of all love. And we thank you for the love of our mothers. We thank you for the love that you've instilled into them that they might have such a hand in raising godly families. God, we are so grateful for what you are, who you are and what you've done. And we ask that as we go today and we celebrate our moms and all that they mean to us, that you might be filling us with such great gospel moments, that we might be rooted in your son, Jesus Christ, that we likewise may love you and serve you. It's in your name we pray.